please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 18. I will be reading Genesis 18, 22 to, 20, to 33 and 19, 15 to 28. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Chapter 19, verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. 
And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Sarah, for reading scripture for us, and a very good morning to you all. Good to see you all here gathered uh, for worship together. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to receive from God. Let's all pray. Dear Father, we thank you indeed that you are a merciful God, and we thank you that you are holy. We praise you for your holiness. And Father, as we come to you, we pray that you would open our hearts to you, help us to reckon with our own sin that we might turn to you for mercy through your Son, Jesus Christ. So bless the preaching of your word, bless the hearing of your word, and may your word be planted deep in our hearts and may it bear good fruit for your glory, for our good. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'd like to begin with a bit of a pop quiz. So who do you prefer? The God of the Old Testament or the God of the New Testament. You know, the, God of the, Old Test- the God of the New Testament seems to be more popular. Right? He appears gentler and kinder than the angry, judging God of the Old Testament. So I think it's no surprise that many of us may say, oh, I prefer the New Testament God. Right? He seems nicer than the Old Testament God. But the, you know, the problem with the question, of course, is that the question assumes that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. Is that a good assumption to make? This is what Marcion, a false teacher from the first century, believed. Marcion was born in what is now Turkey in AD 85, and Marcion refused to believe the God of the Old Testament was the same as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And Marcion reasoned that if God is love, then He can't be full of wrath and justice. And to Marcion, a loving God would not judge sinners, right? To judge sinners would be unloving. Well, that's what Marcion thought. So Marcion decided to improve the Bible, and one thing he did was to discard the entire Old Testament. So, you know, we won't read the Old Testament, we'll just read the New Testament, and even in the New Testament, only the bits that are the good bits. So Marcion may be long gone, but his ideas still live on to this day. You know, we may have never heard of Marcion before, but we may be wrestling with similar questions about the nature of God. You know, some of us may like the idea of a loving God. Yes, God is loving, He's so kind and merciful, but you know, perhaps we are a bit uncomfortable with the notion of a God who judges sinners, a, a God who, has, who can't tolerate sin, right? who is perfectly holy. You know, that sounds rather well, intolerant and harsh and unloving, especially in this day and age of inclusivity. Oh, and so we get to a passage like Genesis 19, and it is a challenging passage because uh, what are we to make of God's judgment? You know, this, is a, this is a passage where there's literally fire and brimstone. Right? What, are we, what are we to make of that? How do we understand God raining fire on Sodom and Gomorrah? You know, is, does this passage prove Marcion's point that the Old Testament God is brutal and harsh, unlike the God of the New Testament? Well, I, I hope we'll see as, as we work our way through these two chapters that the opposite is true. Genesis 18 and 19 tell us about the one true God who is both just and merciful. In fact, I put it to us that God's mercy shines the brighter against the backdrop of sin and judgment. So as we look at these two chapters, we really see four things about God's mercy. And those are really the four points in our sermon this morning. Uh, We see God's mercy in His promises. We see God's mercy through His mediator. Uh, We see God's mercy even in judgment. And we see God's mercy in the mess. Right, those four points. And ultimately, these two chapters point us to the only hope for sinners like us. We have a merciful Saviour who saves us 
by satisfying the demands of God's justice. Right, so number one, God's mercy in His promises. Right, just a quick recap of what we've seen so far in Genesis. Most recently in Genesis 17, uh, we saw how God confirmed His covenant with Abraham and He gave Abraham the sign of the covenant. Circumcision, as we heard last week, points us to spiritual circumcision that God will do for His people. And in response, Abraham is to walk before God and be blameless. In Genesis 18, God again appears to Abraham. Right, verses 1 and 2 it says, The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Right, first, first let's deal with the question, who are these three men? Right, my understanding is that one of them is a theophany. Right? A theophany it simply means an appearance of God in physical form. Right? Here, here's why, let me explain. So it says in verse 22 that the men turned and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then in chapter 19, verse 1, it says the, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Right? So two of the three were angels, then the third must be the Lord who remains with Abraham and speaks, whom Abraham speaks to in chapter 18, beginning verse 22. So three men, one being the Lord, the two being angels. You know, at first, uh, however, Abraham has no idea who these men really are. But nonetheless, uh, the, the first part of our passage shows that Abraham provides them with generous hospitality. You know, you notice Abraham's eagerness to serve them. Right? In verse 2, it says, Abraham ran. Right? He, he didn't take his time, but he ran from the tent door to meet them, you know, even when they were still a long way off. Uh, I think Abraham's actions here remind us of the compassionate father in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. You know, you know how he sees his son a long way off and he runs to his son. You know, not something you expect an elderly person to do, but, but there you have it. Abraham, like this compassionate father, runs to greet these three men. I, I think the, the lesson from there is a simple one. You know, being hospitable means making the first move, reaching out to others, especially strangers. I think that's something that we need to hear, especially strangers. You know, it's easy to reach out to those we know, right? people we like, people we're familiar with, our comfortable circle of friends. Yes, you know, we hang out with them, we reach out to them all the time. But I think this passage presses us to reach out to strangers and to take the initiative, right? You know, the good news is that the, the COVID restrictions are being eased and from next weekend, you know, uh, there'll be no more capacity restrictions. We'll be able to sit and there'll be no more zoning as well. You know, more details will come out in time, but, but those are some of the new uh, uh, guidelines given by the government. So you, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to these yellow chains, these rather unsightly yellow chains being removed and we can begin to sit closer to one another and, and have fellowship, real fellowship, you know, speaking to one another. And you know, as these restrictions are eased, let's really take the opportunity to gather again if we can. You know, if we're not ill, if, if we're not at risk health-wise, well, let, let's really gather again. I think one of the benefits of gathering in person is that you may meet strangers, right? If you stay at home, I guarantee you will not meet strangers. But if you gather here personally after the service, you, 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 chances are you meet someone you don't know. And that gives us the opportunity to be hospitable, just as Abraham did, right? To reach out to people we don't already know. Speak to them after the service, uh, get to know them, allow them to get to know you, and perhaps, you know, strike up a conversation over a meal or coffee. Right? Such, such a wonderful way to serve God. And you see how Abraham honours these men and provides them with a place of rest. He also prepares a lavish meal for them. You know, this is a feast fit for a king. Right? This is not just a, a quick kind of meal, but you know, this is what Abraham does. He provides a calf, tender and good, cakes made from fine flour as well as curds and milk. This is generous Hospitality, not, not grudgingly, but generous. You know, Abraham actually shows us how to walk blamelessly before God. Right? Remember in chapter 17, 
God says, walk blamelessly before me. What does that look like? It looks like hospitality. Right? Uh, don't, don't diminish the importance of this kind of radical hospitality, of reaching out to strangers. This is how we serve God. This is how we uh, reflect God's character because we worship a God who is merciful and gracious. Uh, and if we are God's people, then we should reflect His generosity by being hospitable towards others, especially strangers. Right? Remember how God reaches out to outsiders and brings them into His family? I think that's a wonderful picture of how we should be reaching out to outsiders and bringing them in through the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Right? I think he, the, the author of Hebrews in the New Testament picks up on this, and Hebrews 13 verse 2 exhorts us with these words, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. You know, I, I think it's unfortunate nowadays that scams have made us suspicious of strangers. Right? We hear a lot about stranger, stranger danger. You know, and sometimes some of us, when we get a message from someone else in the church saying, I'm praying for you, I think we get a bit, oh, who's this? But, you know, can I just encourage us that if, if you receive a message from someone you don't know in the church, right, some, another member perhaps, saying, hey, I'm praying for you, uh, you know, don't, don't respond immediately with, oh, who's this person? You know, but, but just give thanks that we have brothers and sisters whom we may not know well praying for us. And, and may we also do the same. Reach out to those we don't know and tell them, hey, uh, I, I saw you in the membership directory. I, I'm just praying for you, praying that God will continue to sustain and strengthen you. What, what a wonderful practice of hospitality. So cultivate the grace of hospitality. You know, make the effort to move beyond our familiar social circles. I think that's something that we all should be encouraged to do, to move beyond our familiar social circles. This is how we love others, in a way that reflects what God is like. This is what makes our love different from the love that we see in the world, right? Jesus says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Well, in this passage, the Lord mercifully reiterates His promises to Abraham. But this time, it is especially for Sarah's benefit, right? Uh, the, the angels ask, where is your wife Sarah? And knowing that she is listening at the tent door, the Lord says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Verse 10. I think we see God's kindness, not just in speaking to Abraham, but in speaking to Sarah as well, his wife, assuring her of his faithfulness. God will keep his promises despite Abraham and Sarah's inability. Right? Verse 11 tells us they were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. There was no way, no humanly, uh, not, 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 nothing humanly possible that they could do to have children. But see God's mercy in His promises to this elderly couple. He will fulfill His word by His grace alone, not by what they can do to work out His promises. You know, see, how, see God's mercy in how He gently deals with Sarah's disbelief. Right? These are difficult things to believe in, right? too good to be true. But God reminds her of His power and faithfulness. In verse 14, He says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. What a wonderful, gracious reminder of God's power. You know, when we struggle to believe God's promises, when we wrestle with disbelief, you know, God comes to us and He says, Is anything too hard for me? Trust me. Rest in me. You know, when, when, when Sarah laughs, right, and, and God kind of gently, I think, confronts her, you know, why did you laugh? <laughs> and Sarah says, I didn't laugh. <laughs> right? And God says, you did laugh. And I think even in that, you know, gentle rebuke of Sarah, you, you see God's mercy, you know, the repetition of the word laugh, it's a reminder of Isaac's name, isn't it? Isaac's name, which means he laughs. So even, even as God confronts Sarah, you know, that reminder of laugh is a reminder of how God will keep His promise to produce a son, Isaac. He laughs 
for Abraham and Sarah. You know, praise God. We have a merciful God who strengthens our faith, who helps us in our unbelief. Point two, we see God's mercy shown through His mediator. Looking at verses 16 to 33. So the three men are on their way to Sodom. And this city, along with Gomorrah, was notorious for its wickedness. Right? We, we, we first hear about Sodom's wickedness in chapter 13, uh, where it says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And here, when we get, when we get to chapter 18, I think it, it's, it's happened that Sodom and Gomorrah have filled up the measure of their sins. And, and God, the righteous judge, is about to take action against these two cities and other cities in the valley as well. So verse 20 and 21, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now friends, what a comfort. We have a God who cares about injustice and oppression and sin. Right? He is not indifferent. And when the outcry comes to Him, He will act in His time. You know, recent world events have highlighted the importance of taking a stand against violence, against injustice, against oppression. You know, as, as we read the news, I think many of us yearn, we long for justice in the world. We, we see the brokenness and fallenness of the world and we long for things to be put right. You know, but friends, what, what will give us hope that things will really be put right? You know, is it just wishful thinking that this world will somehow get better? Well, I think in this passage, God Himself is our hope, that He is our hope that things will ultimately be put right because He will act in His righteousness and in His justice. You know, to not believe in God, in a God of justice is, will only lead to despair because what confidence do we have, what hope do we have if we do not believe in a God of justice that things will ultimately be put right? But because God is just, we can trust Him to make all things right. In fact, God would not be good if He did nothing about the wickedness of the world. But God will make right all the wrongs because He is good. And His justice shows His goodness. You know, indeed, it is because God loves. That's why He does what is good, true, and right. He loves what is good. He loves what is true. He loves what is right because it displays fully his character. And therefore, he must judge and punish sin. That is not a failure of God's love. It is the expression of his love for himself, for his character. A good God is both loving and just. Therefore, God goes down to see Sodom's sin for himself. Right? This doesn't mean that God is ignorant and must somehow be there to learn some new information. But rather, in, in going down, God is demonstrating that His judgment is just, that, that He is evaluating Sodom and Gomorrah according to His righteous standards. And what's remarkable in this passage is how God reveals His plan to Abraham. Right? Notice how God asks a rhetorical question, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Right? Verse 17 and of course, the answer is no, God will tell Abraham what he's about to do. Uh, what's going on here between God and Abraham? God is relating to Abraham as a friend. Right? I think in other parts of the Old Testament, Abraham is described as God's friend. So what do you do with your friend? You, you tell your friend things. You confide in your friend. You, you share your plans and your thoughts with your friend in order to involve your friend in a relationship with you. Right? You're inviting your friend to be a part of this relationship. And that's exactly what God is doing. He's, he's relating to Abraham as a friend, inviting him, taking Abraham into his confidence so that Abraham, so that Abraham knows what God is about to do. You know, this reminds us of Jesus' words to his disciples in John 15, 
Right? Remember those words? Jesus said, I have called you friends. I have called you friends. Why? Because all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And Abraham is God's friend because God has graciously chosen him to bless the nations. Look at verses 18 and 19. So God will tell Abraham what he is about to do. Why? Because he says this of Abraham. Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. So God is going to tell Abraham what he's about to do. And why, does, why does God take Abraham into his confidence? Because of Abraham's calling. Abraham is to bless the nations as God's friend. So God wants Abraham to carry out his calling to bless the nations. So how will all the nations be blessed through Abraham? It will be through Abraham and his offspring doing righteousness and justice. Right? This is how God's people bless the nations, by doing righteousness and justice. You know, in the Old Testament, Israel, the nation descended from Abraham, was to be a kingdom of priests. Exodus 19. And this shows God's desire for the nations. God is a missionary with a heart for all peoples and nations. And, and His intention is to bless the nations through His people who will function as priests. So how do you function as a priest to the nations? You represent God to the nations and you represent the nations before God. In other words, you speak the truth about God to the nations. You, in New Testament terms, you share the gospel, the good news with the nations, and you pray for the nations that they would come to know God, that they would find Him and rest in Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. So that, that's our calling as the people of God. This is how we do righteousness and justice. We, we live in a way that displays the character of Christ. We, we speak of Him to the nations and we intercede for the nations. And not just people we like, but our enemies as well, right? That's what Jesus says, love your enemies. And we pray for the nations. And in, in, in doing so, we, we share God's heart for the nations. So, so God speaks to Abraham as a friend and He invites Abraham to carry out his role as someone who would bless the nations. And Abraham does that by mediating, by interceding for Sodom. You know, see God's mercy through his mediator. Abraham fulfills his God-given purpose by interceding for sinful Sodom of all people. It's the only place in the Old Testament where an Old Testament saint pleads with God for mercy for a pagan people. You know, Abraham is a contrast to the prophet Jonah. You know, the Jonah, Jonah refused to go to Nineveh but Abraham intercedes for a city that clearly does not deserve mercy. He prays for Sodom. Now notice how in Abraham's intercession, Abraham doesn't mention his nephew Lot at all. So I don't think Abraham is interceding because he's just thinking about Lot, because Lot lives in the city. No, I think Abraham is interceding because Abraham genuinely desires that God show mercy on Sodom. Yes, Lot lives there, but it's not primarily for the sake of Lot. Abraham has a heart for this city. Isn't that amazing? You know, Abraham appeals to God's righteous character. And he says in verses 23 to 25, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? For far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. And shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And Abraham engages in these six rounds of to and fro with God. And after six rounds of negotiations, you know, God agrees to spare Sodom for the sake of ten righteous people. You know, Abraham drives a hard bargain. 
know, this give and take, I think, shows God's mercy and compassion. You know, he didn't have to listen to Abraham. But, but the fact that he involves Abraham in intercession and he listens to the pleading of his servant, I think, shows God's mercy and compassion. Friends, this is our hope that the God who is the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And this gives us the confidence and the boldness to approach Him and to plead for mercy. We can pray to Him, God, You are just and You will do what is right. So act according to Your righteous character. Do what is right. Beloved, this is our hope and our confidence in a fallen and broken world. He is, this God is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this God has provided a mediator who pleads mercy for sinners like us. Have we trusted in God's mediator? Number three, we see God's mercy in judgment. Looking in chapters, uh, chapter 19, verses 1 to 29. So the two angels arrive in Sodom in the evening and they are met by Lot, who was, it says, sitting in the city gate. And this little description of Lot shows how much Lot has compromised with the world. You notice in, as you read these chapters in Genesis, Lot goes from living near Sodom to living in Sodom and now he's sitting in the city gate, which means that Lot has taken up a prominent position in the city. Right, that, that's where the leaders of the city would sit, in the city gate, in the town square where they deliberate matters pertaining to the city. Lot is hospitable, although at first the two men are reluctant to take up his invitation. You know, but Lot knows Sodom, right? He, he knows the kind of city that Sodom is. He says, well, this is a really bad neighbourhood. You, know, you don't want to spend the night in this really bad neighbourhood. So he presses them strongly, right? He says, don't, don't spend the night in the town square. You know, come to my house. Uh, I think he's probably trying to protect these men, being hospitable to these men. But what happens next is a horrific account of human sinfulness and depravity. You know, before the two guests go to bed, the men of Sodom, both young and old, you notice the emphasis, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. You know, this, this emphasis, all the people down to the last man, show that there are not even 10 righteous people in Sodom. Uh, all the men from the city gather around Lot's home. And what do they want? They ask that these two men are brought out so that they may know them. You know, that's a polite way of saying uh, they want to have sexual relations with these two men. And Lot faces a terrible dilemma. You know, Lot wants to be hospitable, and, and hospitality was a big thing in the culture of that day. You know, it, it was a very important thing that you protect and care for your guests. So Lot is placed in a really, really difficult position. So one thing to be hospitable, Lot tries to dissuade the men of Sodom by carrying out homosexual from carrying out homosexual gang rape by offering his two daughters instead. Right? This is a terrible, terrible situation. You know, Lot proposes one heinous sin in, in an attempt to prevent another. Right? I, I think in this terrible dilemma and, and Lot's response to the dilemma, I, I think you see how far Lot has fallen. You know, his moral compass is completely broken. Uh, the, the thought of proposing that they deal with, that, that these men violate his two daughters instead of his two guests, I mean, it, it, it's, you know, it, it just beggars the imagination. It's, it's horrible to think about. You know, not only does Lot live in Sodom, but I, I think we see how Sodom has come to live in Lot. You know, but the men of Sodom insist on gratifying their lust. They refuse to turn from their wicked ways and they threaten Lot as well. So the two angels must intervene. They pull Lot into the house with them and shut the door and they also strike with blindness the men of Sodom. 
But you see how the, the Sodomites are so steeped in sin that they stubbornly refuse to give up and they wear themselves out trying to find the doorknob. And the problem here is not just attempted rape. Homosexual practice, even between consenting parties, goes against God's design for human sexuality. And how do we know that? You, know, you go back to Genesis 2 at the creation where God institutes marriage you know, and he says, you know, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now that, that's God's plan for human sexuality, that the one flesh union is meant to be expressed within the covenantal commitment of marriage between one man and one woman. So Sodom, in its homosexual practice, has departed, has deviated from God's good design for sexuality. Indeed, any, any practice of sexuality that deviates from God's good design is sin. And not just homosexuality, but other forms of sexual sin. Anything that departs from God's good design for sexuality. You know, in, in the New Testament, Jude 7 says, Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Unnatural in the sense of how it is opposed to God's good design for His creation. So not natural as He designed it to be. Sodom's sin is fundamentally rebellion against God. Right? Paul says in Romans 1 that humanity has exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonourable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. But while the Bible identifies homosexual practice as sin, we must not single it out as though it is the, quote, worst sin. I think we would do well to listen to what Ezekiel says about Sodom. Right, this is from Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 to 50. Ezekiel says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, access of food, and prosperous ease. I think if you just listen to those three descriptions, they could very well be describing life in affluent Singapore. Pride, access of food, prosperous ease. And this is what Ezekiel goes on to say about Sodom. Sodom did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So yes, the, the word abomination in Ezekiel 16 does refer to homosexual sin. But as Ezekiel makes clear, it is by no means Sodom's only sin. Sodom was proud and unloving. Sodom idolized comfort, convenience, security, pleasure. I think if you just listen to those descriptions of Sodom's sin, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we would say, yeah, I, I can see Sodom in my own life. I can see Sodom in my own heart. Yes, I idolize comfort. I idolize convenience. Right? I, I'd rather be convenient than to go out of my way to love and serve someone else. You know, I, I idolize excess of food. I, I, I take pleasure in prosperous ease. I like my life to be as comfortable as I can. Right? Don't, don't, don't we see Sodom in our own hearts, friends? So as, as, we, as we read about Sodom in the Old Testament, I think the wrong response is to point the finger at Sodom and say, oh, those are really bad people. I'm glad I'm not like them. A wrong response. I think as Ezekiel makes clear, Oh, we, we all exhibit these sinful tendencies in our own hearts. Now, Ezekiel, in fact, Ezekiel in Ezekiel 16, he calls out God's people 
Right? Notice how Ezekiel says this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Judah. He's talking to God's people. He's saying, you're just like Sodom because you live in the very same way. Now, these, are, these are humbling, convicting words and I pray that we take these words to heart. You know, Ezekiel calls out Israel and Judah as guilty of the very same sins. So, friends, beware of self-righteousness. Instead of complacently pointing the finger at Sodom, let's, let's reflect honestly on how we ourselves have fallen short of God's glory. How has Sodom taken up residence in our own hearts? You know, God made us to worship Him, but we have turned away from Him to serve ourselves. We are all sinners in need of God's mercy. And we do well to remember that and, and to be convicted of our sin before a holy God. You know, and there are some of us among us who wrestle with same-sex attraction. You know, I know, I know brothers and sisters who want to follow Jesus in faith and purity and they, they, and they wrestle with same-sex attraction. Let's come alongside one another. Let's encourage one another to repent and persevere in holiness by God's grace. We are all sinners and we all need the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. You know, Lot has grown so comfortable in Sodom that he's reluctant to leave. It says in verse 16, Lot lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. The Lord being merciful to him. Right? God physically intervenes in Lot's life and literally drags him and his immediate family out of the city. Why? Because God is merciful to him. Now, isn't it true that God shows us mercy sometimes by dragging us away from our sins? God saves us in spite of us. Not because we deserve it, but because He's merciful to us. And then they, the two angels bring Lot out and set him outside the city. You know, but even then, you know, it's, it's remarkable that Lot still doesn't fully trust God's salvation. They, they want, so the angels say to Lot, escape to the hills. Lot says, no thanks. Right? Instead of obeying God and escaping to the hills, Lot comes up with his own plan of salvation. He says, I want to go to Zohar instead. Right? Let me go to this city instead. It is nearer. I don't think I'll make it if I go to the hills. So Lot doesn't trust God's offer of salvation still. It, it, it's remarkable. And he asks God to spare Zohar because it is only a little city. Right? You know, God is rationalizing things here, right? He's saying, hey, you know, this is just a little city, not as bad as the big Sodom. This one's just a little one. So let me go there instead. Right? I, I think it's, it's tragic. You see Lot compromising with worldliness, even up to this point. You know, unlike Abraham who sought mercy for Sodom, you know, Lot isn't really concerned about Zohar. He's concerned about his own convenience and comfort in going to this small city. He's just thinking about himself. You know, Lot is still living by sight, not faith. And, and yet, amazingly, God shows mercy to Lot still by granting his request. What, what a wonderful testament to God's mercy to undeserving sinners. So God's judgment falls on Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the waters that rained down in the flood judgment, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire you know, from, from heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of all of the cities and what grew on the ground. So Lot and his two daughters are saved, not because of anything they've done, but only by the grace and mercy of God. And in verse 29 in chapter 19, it, it tells us that Lot is saved. Why? Because God remembered Abraham. God remembered Abraham's intercession, right? God saves Lot because he is faithful to his promises to Abraham. We too are saved because God has remembered Abraham. We are saved only because God has remembered his covenant commitment to Abraham to, to raise up for Abraham a promised offspring and this promised offspring will bless the nations. You know, this is how we are saved. 
Because God remembers in faithfulness His covenant promises. And God has kept His word by sending His Son, Jesus, to save sinners like us. Like Abraham who asked mercy for Sodom, so Jesus is the only mediator between us and the Holy God. Sodom is a preview of the final judgment and Sodom is a merciful warning for us to flee from the wrath to come. And unless we also repent and take refuge in Jesus, we too will perish. So don't respond like Lot's sons-in-law who joked about judgment. Don't respond like Lot's wife who perished because she refused to let go of this world and she looked back. And Jesus warns if we reject him, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for us. But Jesus says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That is God's mercy, friends. Go to God and receive his mercy while today is the day of salvation. Finally, God's mercy in the mess. Looking at verses 30 to 38. You know, these, again, these are tragic, tragic verses. Right? Lot is a tragic character. Lot is, Lot, Lot is an example of someone who seems to start well but doesn't end well. Right? Lot seems to have started well. You know, he goes with Abraham and trusted in God's promises. Yet the story of Lot's life ends rather dismally. Because he has not lived by faith, he now lives in fear. Afraid to live in Zohar, you know, that's ironic, he wanted to go to Zohar, but now it says that he's afraid to live in Zohar. So Lot ends up living in the hills after all. He ends up living in a cave in the hills, and Lot has lost everything. He doesn't even have offspring to call his own to continue his family line. So Lot's two daughters come up with a sordid scheme. They take turns getting their father drunk and then sleeping with him. And I think it's it's remarkable that Lot is so drunk that he doesn't even realise what has happened. Not just once, but twice on two consecutive nights. I mean, these are shocking verses in the Bible. Sometimes some of us may wonder, wow, this is actually in the Bible. Right. Uh, these, are, these are just shocking accounts of human depravity and sin. And, you know, I think it's so ironic that Lot's daughters, who were saved from being violated by the men of Sodom, now violate their own father. As a result of their incest, Lot's daughters get pregnant. The older daughter's son is named Moab, while the younger daughter's son is named Ben-Ami. And these two sons go on to, uh, to produce two peoples, right? the Moabites and the Ammonites. So this is a tragic end to the story of Lot. But I want us to really see God's mercy even in this mess. He can redeem even the darkest episodes of depravity for His glory. Right? Because if, as you read on in the Old Testament, you, you come across this Moabite woman, whose name is Ruth. And and this Moabite woman, who's descended from this incestuous union between Lot and his daughters, this Moabite woman will show steadfast love to her Israelite mother-in-law, Naomi. And she will show steadfast love to Naomi. How? By marrying Boaz, who's from the tribe of Judah. And, And Ruth and Boaz's marriage will reunite the families of Abraham and Lot. Surprise! And more than that, this union between Ruth and Boaz will lead to the birth of David, a king after God's own heart, and ultimately the birth of Jesus. So think about this. No Moab, no Ruth. No Ruth, No David, no David, no Jesus. Isn't it amazing how God works even in this very dark episode of human sin 
to bring about His purposes. I think it, it's, it's, it's wonderful that we worship a God who is merciful and sovereign, and He works for His glory in this way, with surprising grace. And Ruth, an outsider from Moab, is listed in Jesus' genealogy. So you read Matthew 1, she's listed there as a part of that genealogy of Jesus. Friends, how do we know that Marcion was wrong? We need only to look to Jesus. In Him, God's justice and mercy meet. Jesus has shown us mercy by bearing God's judgment in our place. Jesus satisfies the demands of God's perfect justice. How? By taking it on Himself. He is judged and He suffers and He dies on the cross for undeserving sinners so that we can be forgiven and made right with God if we trust in this mediator, Jesus. Jesus is the one who shows us mercy in our mess. You may be struggling with the darkness of sin in your own life, but take heart that Jesus is the one who is able to redeem us and to turn our darkness into His glorious light. And I pray that we may know the mercies of God in His Son, Jesus Christ, that we may trust Him, that we may find in Him life and joy and forgiveness. May we glory in our Redeemer, who crushed the power of sin and death, our only Saviour, before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is our righteousness. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we praise you indeed. We thank you for your goodness and mercy to us. We thank you that we can come to you, not because we are deserving, but because you invite us to come through your Son. We thank you for such a mediator who loves us, who pleads for us, who takes our judgment on himself so that we can be forgiven and made right with you. So Father, we pray that you would turn us away from our sins Help us to see ourselves as broken, unworthy sinners. We have all turned away from you. We pray that you would convict us of our unrighteousness. Help us to flee to Jesus, to flee from the wrath to come by taking refuge in your Son. We pray this in His name. Amen.